Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to a new episode of Fish Bites on the Fish Stripes Podcast. This is Eli Sussman, I'm your managing editor at Fish Stripes. If you go to the website, fishstripes.com, our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Fish Stripes, well that's me, that's me overseeing it, our staff of really talented writers and podcasters, and trying to build together what is the most passionate and informed Miami Marlins community anywhere. So we're covering the franchise from all angles, including with this expanded podcast. As you may notice, I am not Danny Martinez, and that's where I have bad news, good news, and even more good news for you. The bad news is that Danny's not here. He's unavailable to host this week's episode. It's the first time this entire Marlin season that he's not recording Fish Bites. The good news is that he has a very valid excuse for it. It's his wedding weekend. He's been waiting a long time for that. All the in-laws are in town, so congratulations to everybody over there. I hope he's enjoying it and soaking in the big milestone in his life. More good news is that I was not invited to the wedding, so that means that I'm available to record in his absence, and it's a pleasure to do that in addition to everything else I do overseeing fish stripes. So I hope you enjoy. We have very different styles, somewhat slightly different outlooks on the direction of the Marlins franchise and where they are at the moment, but I hope you enjoy this separate perspective on it. And it's a very big moments for the Marlins franchise here in the middle of July 2019. It's This is going to be our MLB trade deadline special. That's coming up. The deadline will be on the afternoon of July 31st, a couple weeks away. We're going to go through basically all the major trade candidates on the Marlins. And when I say trade candidates, I mean just the, the really pragmatic, viable ones. Uh, we're not going to list through every single player. Trust me, I've done the hard work. I've gone through the entire roster. I've vetted the entire league for trade fits. Uh, the reality is it's going to be somewhat of a quiet deadline for the Marlins, kind of like last year, in, in that uh, again, they're just looking for fits that make sense for them, trying to sell guys at relatively high value when possible, and they're not going to rush into anything that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make their farm system significantly better. But we're going to look at really a handful of interesting candidates, some that are having really big years, others that are on expiring deals. And for one reason or another, all of them are going to be on the trading block at the deadline, I assume. I'm going to make some predictions about which of those guys are actually going to get dealt. And then at the very end of the podcast, we're going to go through some of the, some of the ones who are snubbed from being featured in the episode, those that I believe very wholeheartedly will not be moved, and the reasons for that. Before we get into that, we're dropping into another very exciting topic, which was all this young talent that is finally stepping into Marlins Park for the first time, not as major leaguers, but finally as professionals. This month of July has been a, a pretty landmark month for the Marlins franchise, even without all these trades, simply with signing amateur talent through the MLB draft and through international free agency. This past Friday was the deadline for signing 2019 MLB draft picks, and the Marlins kicked it out of the park. If you've been listening to the episode, you know that when they originally selected these players in June, it was one of the most talented draft classes in franchise history. And and frankly, you can't make an argument for any of the other years. If, if you just look at the sheer talent that they've gotten, both at the top of the draft and some sneaky pickups in the middle rounds, there's so much upside and so many players that could have very large roles in the major leagues eventually. The big question was how many of these players would actually get signed to contracts. If pretty strict limits in Major League Baseball now as ter- when it comes to how much money you can spend on these players. Some of them, understandably, uh, don't want to take a discount in what could be their f- what is their first big payday of their careers and what could be their only payday if, for whatever reason, their correct careers don't go as planned. The Marlins signed 31 players out of their 41 picks, which is a relatively low number, but 
everybody that has potential big league impact signed. The three big names that came in on Friday, J.J. Bleday, the outfielder out of Vanderbilt, selected in the first round, Cameron Meisner, uh, the 35th overall pick out of Missouri in the competitive balance round, and then right-hander Chris Machma in the 12th round, a high school pitcher out of Michigan. Uh, all three of them signed. All three of them got a, what you call above slot value, and that the Marlins gave them more money than uh, they necessarily had to. Somehow they got it done. They took care of all these guys, um, and again, over slot value for all three of them to keep them relatively happy. Blade and Meisner were already introduced at Marlins Park, uh, signing their official contracts, taking batting practice with the team, uh, meeting with reporters. They they seem like really mature guys. They look like very mature guys, filled out, giving you a lot of optimism that they're going to progress through the minor league system a lot quicker than a typical draft pick in order to impact the organization that they're building within just a couple of years, potentially, assuming no injuries and no setbacks. Hopefully they'll start playing professional games very soon. We'll have all that coverage for you uh, on Earning Their Stripes, our prospects coverage show with Danny, Ian, and Ethan. So looking forward to seeing them on the field in the Gulf Coast League and then eventually in full season ball. Overall, the Marlins committed more than $15 million to this draft class. When you think of it that way, it's like a big free agent signing, except you split it among a handful of different players. And that is the most expensive draft class in franchise history. So if you're wondering about whether this ownership group is committed to spending, that's one way they're doing it. That's not necessarily uh, pushed in your face all the time. That's not a figure that a lot of people pay attention to, you know, how much money they spend on the amateur draft. But it matters, and it adds up. And these players, if just a couple of them break through to be regular major leaguers, it turns out to be a great value for the organization and a very critical step to fill a couple holes we know, especially on the offensive side, this organization desperately needed help. A couple of guys with very high upside, and they got it. Also on Saturday, a couple of their big international signings who committed on July 2nd, shortstop Jose Salas and shortstop Ian Lewis. Both of them were in the ballpark at the same time as Meisner going through the same drills. Those guys are much farther away than being, to being in the major leagues and having that impact. 16 years old, a lot of things could go wrong for them. A lot of things can go right, and they can exceed expectations both of them great athletes, and you could see that just by looking at batting practice. Both of those guys got very significant bonuses, a couple of the largest ones in the entire international signing period. Their progress, like I said, is going to be a lot more gradual. They'll be playing short season ball this year and perhaps in 2020 as well before really moving on to the serious levels, but very high upside. Great athletes, a good all-around game. They start as short stops. Maybe they d drop off into you know a lower priority defensive position eventually you just don't know but it's just a really big step they spread around the international money in a way they didn't do last year you remember uh, the previous signing period they went all in on the mesa brothers and the impact they'll have we'll see how that turns out it's a much different approach this year and uh, one that will take years to pay off but that's the whole part of this rebuild is just being patient just being patient to see how it all works out with that being said, this is where we transition to the MLB trade deadline, barely two weeks away from this huge milestone on the baseball calendar. For president of baseball operations, Michael Hill, this is a pretty critical moment in his entire career. He's been with the Marlins organization for what seems like almost two decades in a variety of roles, and he is one of the lone holdovers from the old ownership, the old administration that received a lot of grief for how they handled the transactions in the front office and how they processed information whether or not they actually got good value out of the players that they sent away or acquired and the timing of which they made those kind of moves. And we just didn't have that upper level depth. We didn't have depth 
anywhere. We talk so much about layering the talent and having talent, you know, from the low minors all the way up to the big leagues. It's imperative. You know, you don't have a sustainable product unless you have layers and waves of talent coming. And, and that's something that we've been able to accomplish and, you know, in, in, in pretty short order and excited with, uh, with all the young players, some of them who we see on display here in the big leagues uh, now. Although this is very different people that he's reporting to these days, and we generally like to separate the two eras of this Marlins franchise, he was in a position of power for several years under Jeffrey Loria. You go all the way back to the 2014 trade deadline. That was the first time he was in a general manager role, and you can say he was overruled by ownership at certain times, that he was pushed in certain directions, that he was swayed against his better judgment, but he needs to be held at least partially accountable for being in that his position back then, being there now, and it's not all bad, frankly. We should just be reviewing his record a little bit and see what exactly that tells us about how they'll might proceed in 2019 moving forward and what he could possibly do this year that justifies keeping his current job any longer. His current contract reportedly goes through the end of next season, 2020, but it's not uncommon for executives and other leadership positions in baseball to be tested really the year before a contract ends. There's no doubt that this is a very important trade deadline for him to prove himself. Marlins have a handful of guys that they'll be actively shopping, looking to find new homes for, flipping for younger, more controllable talent. There will also be several that they don't want to trade, but that other contending teams will be asking about. This is a weird situation with the Marlins team, where many of their best players are the ones that are under the longest-term control. Danny has talked about that excessively and consistently throughout the season so far, how it's really the young core guys that are playing the best. And if they're playing best at the major league level for a team that's not contending, the contending teams will be asking whether they're available to help them right now. So those are going to be some very interesting conversations. I'm not expecting anything too bold, but we'll find out. We're going to go through these players alphabetically by last name, one by one, the ones that I think are real, have any reasonable chance of being traded. Those that don't, I'll be mentioning at the end, but we want to go through the guys that are going to be involved in most of the rumors over these next few weeks and the cases for and against moving them. First up is right-hander Austin Bryce, age 27 season, 188 ERA, a 372 fielder independent pitching, 0.3 fan graphs, wins above replacement, and that's in 38 and a third innings. This has been a breakout year for Bryce. You can read all about that on fishstripes.com. One of our new writers, Daniel Toll, took a great look at him in our Fishy or For Real analysis series, testing whether what he's doing right now is sustainable, why exactly he's performing that well, because if you look at his career up until now with both the Marlins and then in the Reds over the past couple of years, he's been a really mediocre reliever, a guy that you wouldn't test in any like high leverage situations, someone who was struggling to miss a lot of bats and relying a lot on his defense. He was just a very ordinary player. The Marlins were able to get him in February by claiming him off waivers from at that time the Baltimore Orioles. Bryce has the longest scoreless ending streak of any Marlins reliever this season. It's an active streak dating back to the middle of June. The key for him, as Daniel pointed out in the article, is his curveball usage. It's been his best pitch, really, throughout his major league career, and now he's finally actually treating it like that. It's something that he relies on more than 
either of his fastballs or any of his other secondary stuff, throwing it nearly half the time. Nearly half of his pitches are curveballs, and he throws it to left-handers and right-handers. He throws it to all parts of the strike zone, even outside the strike zone to get chases. It's been a really effective weapon for him. It's made a huge difference. It's not an overpowering pitch, and his fastball velocity is very ordinary by reliever standards, actually a tick below average by major league reliever standards, but this is how he's able to compensate for that. So it's been really interesting, an exciting development. What do the Marlins want to do with him? Because he's under long-term control for a while. He is relatively cheap, earning about the league minimum this season. He doesn't have much of a track record of success prior to 2019. If you look at his minor league numbers, they were relatively run-of-the-mill too, nothing to get too excited about. He was never on any top prospect lists. What is his value really on the market? That's something that's pretty tough to gauge. This is an environment in Major League Baseball where teams are able to read more information in small sample sizes than they used to be able to, and there are a lot of peripheral stats that they look at aside from the ERA. Uh, There is that troubling factor that his FIP is nearly doubled his ERA. That would suggest that there is some good luck going on here on balls in play. He, it's not, he's, again, even though he's been striking out a lot more guys this year than he has in years past, it's still not outstanding for the Major League reliever standard, but he's been arguably their best reliever this season, and this is the time of year where hopefully they learn from 2018 that when you hold on to your relievers at the peak of their value, they're going to come down in value, and you can't necessarily trust them to replicate their success. If I was to guess, I'd say that Bryce does not get traded at the deadline. It's going to be some contending teams that are curious, of course, but ultimately very uh, reluctant because of his mixed track record at the major league level and relatively short track record of success. I don't advocate for the Marlins holding on to these guys, knowing that how much other pitching talent they have coming up through the pipeline, but I do understand both sides of it. They need to get some significant value in return, and that's not necessarily there at this very moment. Maybe it will be in the offseason if Bryce keeps this up. Either way, it's a nice turn of events for the Marlins to get somebody as a waiver claim and have them now as a legitimate trade asset. Next up is a much more recognizable name. It's second baseman Starlin Castro. Age 29 season, a 248 batting average, 274 on base percentage, 343 slugging, 63 weighted runs created plus. League average is 100. He's at 63. Yikes. Negative 0.7 Fangraphs wins above replacement in 379 plate appearances this season. Until very recently, Castro was the worst qualified hitter in Major League Baseball, uh, which is a stunning turn of events for a guy that is a multiple-time All-Star with both the Cubs and the Yankees, who was a very solid player for them last season, and it's hard to really explain what happened, man. I mean, he's fallen off a cliff with it with offensively. He's been the slightly worst defensively, I've found, this year compared to last year as well. He's just hitting everything on the ground. That's not a formula for success in Major League Baseball in 2019. Understanding what Marlins Park is, how it plays unnecessarily large and all that, you got to hit the ball in the air sometimes. If not fly balls, then line drives, and he's not doing that. Castro is on a contract extension that he signed very early in his career with the Cubs. They thought at the time it would be a very team-friendly deal. Uh, Ultimately, you could say it's been a positive for the teams that have had him, but certainly not this year. He's, again, below replacement level. If they had called up any ordinary prospect in the minor leagues, and in the Marlins case, where they have a great second-base prospect in Isan Diaz, had they called him up, they'd be winning more games than they are with someone like Starlin Castro right now because of his lack of hitting, his lack of defensive versatility. Although, through his career, he's been somewhat of an adequate defensive second baseman, and he doesn't 
have the skills to play anything else. And versatility is such a huge component to value these days, considering that benches are shorter than they used to be on your active roster. Castro is earning $11.86 million this season, which he'll have a hard time justifying unless he has an explosive second half of the season. That also comes with a 2020 team option in his contract for $16 million in a $1 million buyout. You can absolutely guarantee that whether the Marlins are stuck with him or whether they're able to unload him, whichever team has his rights is going to buy out his contract because players like him are just not that valuable in the game anymore, uh, especially when they're not hitting for any power like he is right now. He's someone that if he was in the free agent market, there's no way in hell he'd get a $16 million contract, um, guaranteed at least, maybe with options it would get up there, but he's going to be, yeah, he's going to be a free agent this offseason. You could pretty much rest assured the teams that the Marlins are going to be talking with him about at the deadline, they're going to be looking at him strictly as a rental. They see that he's playing a lot better in July. That is true. Uh, he's The extra base hits are coming a little bit more frequently, and just generally the batting average on balls in play, that's been a little unlucky for him this year. That's starting to even out. He does look more like the old Starlin Castro recently, but that's a very small sample size. The big sample size, the entire first half of the season, says that Starlin is a bad player, and it's hard to move a bad player who's making eight figures this year and, again, has that option for 2020. It makes more sense, frankly, for the Marlins to pay him to play for somebody else than it does for, to keep him here for any reason because his usefulness is run its course here in the Marlins. Disappointed as they may be in what happened, I don't blame them at all for entering the season with him as their starting second baseman. He, was, he made a lot of sense as a placeholder, and it simply hasn't worked out. So they'll hope to salvage anything they possibly can for him at the trade deadline, I don't think they'll be able to get a deal done unless they actually pick up the money owed to him. Most of it, pretty much all of it, in my opinion, just knowing the economy around baseball right now, you pick up that money to make sure that the player goes somewhere and you get any sort of young compensation in return. If I was to make a prediction, I think they do find a way to get him off the roster before July 31st in a trade. If not, they may have to just wind up releasing him, which is going to be a tough pill to swallow, but one that makes a lot of sense, given the direction of the organization. I guess there'll be some fond memories of Starlin as a Marlin. Uh, some of the clutches he had in 2018, and at least some of the funny antics he had on the field. There's two outs, it's extra innings. How would you describe the focus that you have to have in that at-bat to make sure that you put together a good at-bat? I think it's pretty good, you know. I think I, I put a really good at-bat because that guy is, is really good. You know, he makes really good pitches, you know, and the, like I say, I just look at pitches that I can drive, and the, finally he, he leave me one middle in, and finally I can drive. Every win feels good, but a win like this, where you get it in extra innings, you really have to grind it out the whole game. Is it a little bit more satisfying? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Like like you say, we come in here, we play against a really good team in our division, so we just try to come in there every day and try to compete and try to win again, you know, and just not only me, I think the whole team get a, a really good about today. Uh, by all accounts, he's been a good citizen in the clubhouse. Simply hasn't worked out this year. And it's, it's hard to find anybody to blame, really, but they need to wrap this up one way or another. Now we go to left-hander Harlan Garcia. Age 26 season, a 2.96 ERA, a 3.02 FIP, 0.3 WAR, and that's in 27 and a third innings this season. 
It's been a huge bounce back this year for Harlan, looking a lot more like the rookie version of himself in 2017 that had a lot of people excited. He's missing way more bats at about a league average rate. He's generating some more ground balls instead of serving up homers. So his peripherals have come all the way down to his ERA. That's really refreshing to see. Believes it could be a little bit more sustainable. He is just like Austin Bryce. He's someone that's under control for a long time, earning pretty close to the league minimum this year. So there's going to be a lot of teams interested in seeing him as an upgrade. He can get out both lefties and righties. That's one thing that's very unusual, I guess, about Don Mattingly's bullpen usage, that he doesn't do a lot of platoon matchups whatsoever. He has a lot of his lefties facing righties and vice versa. Someone like Harlan has shown that he could pitch multiple innings. Of course, with that background as a starter, with all the innings that he pitched last year, there's really no restrictions on the kind of role that he could have down the stretch for a contender. And as we mentioned previously with Austin Bryce, they have all this pitching talent coming up through the season. They have more starting pitching prospects than they have rotation spots for. So there's going to be some of these guys that are going to transition into a relief role at the major league level. The guys that they have in those roles right now are more expendable. The relievers that historically get traded for huge hauls at the trade deadline, they have a lot more swing and miss in this game. Uh, they fit the prototype for like a shutdown, late-ending arm, and Harlan is not that. He's not a shutdown guy. He's just a comfortably above-average option for contending teams. He makes a lot of these bullpens better, especially someone like the Red Sox, who've been scrambling for relief depth this entire season. You can probably name a few others. Uh, a lot of contenders really outside of the New York Yankees, I'd say, could use other options in the later innings just to give them separate looks. At this time of year, almost every contender could use some relief depth in their bullpen. Uh, even if they're going to limit Harlan to matching up lefty on lefty, that's still something that's useful down the stretch of the regular season that could help teams in the postseason. He would bring back potentially multiple prospects in return, but probably not anyone that's going to crack the Marlins top 20 prospect list. Guys that could have usefulness in the major leagues down the road, but certainly nobody that has big, big upside is going to be attained in this kind of deal. Uh, there's a pretty good chance this happens. He's someone that should definitely be shopped aggressively if you're the Marlins. We move on to a very sneaky trade candidate, one that I can almost guarantee you weren't thinking about when you turned on this episode, and that is catcher Brian Holiday. Age 31 season, he's batting 311, a 404 on base percentage, 489 slugging, 138 weighted runs created plus. Remember that 100 is league average. 0.1 war and 53 plate appearances. Tiny, tiny sample size. You don't want to overreact to that. One and one to Holiday. Ground ball up the middle. It's a base hit. And another walk-off win for the Marlins. Brian Holiday comes through, and it's a 4-3 Marlins win. <laughs> yeah, there haven't been too many times this season where the Marlins' legs get them the victory. That is the case tonight. Consider that in 2018, Marlins backup catcher that year behind JT Real Muto, and he was almost an automatic out at the plate, offering no power whatsoever. Average together those two seasons, which I think is the best way of doing it, 2018 and 2019, he is surely a below average hitter, even for the catcher position. It's just the reality of the situation doesn't generate much power, certainly doesn't run very well on the bases. His plate discipline is all right, nothing special. Where he really makes an impact for you is in the clubhouse and defensively. He's also just a very good value, someone that is earning, signed a minor league deal with the Marlins. He's someone that is a good backup catcher. He's better than a lot of backup catchers around the league. 
The reason why I have him as a trade candidate is because of somewhat of a roster jam that's coming up. Chad Wallach has been on the 60-day injured list with a concussion for now almost two months. We're coming up on the point where he is almost eligible to return. He's actively on a rehab assignment in AAA New Orleans. Wallach is someone that the Marlins picked out of spring training to be their preferred backup catcher for Jorge Alfaro. So now that he's coming back, are you going to keep him blocked in AAA just because Holiday has impressed in a small sample size? Or are you going to kind of go with your first instinct on that? understanding that Wallach has a few more years of control ahead of him than Holiday does and that he does a lot of the same things early in the season, at least in that small sample size, I would think that this is a sneaky one that actually happens. There's a very strong chance that Brian Holiday gets traded. The Marlins do have additional catching depth, even if there is an injury down the stretch, even if they do trade Holiday. But he's someone that can help contending teams as a backup you're not going to get anything of significance in return, probably just one player to be named later or just a lottery ticket prospect that uh, has a lot of question marks around him. That's just the reality of trading a backup at a position, someone that if you look at postseason history, backup catchers really don't play much at all. He's someone to help reinforce you for the stretch run, and he'll remain under arbitration eligibility in 2020 if his contending team really likes a fit. But this is the one I'm going to go out on a limb and say the Marlins do get a deal done trading Brian Holiday to a contending team before July 31st. Flipping back to the pitching side of things, second-year right-hander Trevor Richards, age 26 season, a 4.18 ERA, a 4.65 FIP, 1.0 wins above replacement, and 99 innings pitched this season. You know about his amazing backstory, former undrafted free agent at a Drury University, he went to play independent ball. He very nearly came to the point of turning the page on his baseball career and doing something else until the Marlins spotted him and gave him a shot in their minor league system. His story is unbelievable. Went to college, undrafted, independently a couple of years, and then the Marlins signed him, and, and less than two years later, Terry, he's in the major leagues, and you're watching your son here start. What's it like? It's unbelievable. He's worked hard. He deserves everything he got. Uh, a lot of family and friends supporting him. It's been awesome. It's always nerve-wracking to watch your son, I'm sure, pitch. I mean, probably no matter what level. Yeah. But what about, what's different about this one? This is the big show. <laughs> it's great. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. The confidence that he had, Terry, to, to go the route he did is, is unusual to get to the big leagues this, this quickly, if you will. I put that in quotes because I know it's been a long road. That definitely is, but uh, if you knew uh, Trevor, uh, there was no, never any doubt in his mind that he was going to do it. So. Uh, uh, he's an unbelievable kid, and he's worked hard, and he deserves it. He rocketed it up through the system extremely quickly and spent most of 2018 in their rotation. Richards has an amazing changeup, one of the sexiest pitches in baseball when it's on, so much vertical drop on the pitch. When he's setting it up the right way, when he's commanding it, it's virtually unhittable. Unfortunately, he's just not a complete pitcher, and he hasn't been a very consistent pitcher, although he's been in the rotation throughout the 2019 season. Done some interesting things with his fastball, throwing it more up in the zone to get swings and misses, and that's been working. But at the same time, batters have adjusted to the changeup a little bit. He's giving up more home runs against the pitch. There's just less of a domination factor with him than you see with some of these other high upside starting pitching prospects coming up through the Marlins system. If you're only going to have five starting rotation spots in the major leagues, at most six, I just don't know if he's going to be one of those guys for this Marlins organization when this team turns the corner. Someone that could have some value in the bullpen as a fastball changeup guy. Just focus on those two pitches with him and create some deception to it. 
but he might have more value on like a contending team, one that does not have the same pitching depth that the Marlins have, one that'd be willing to live with his inconsistency in the rotation. It might have some suggestions with what he can do with his breaking ball to get more value out of it. The Marlins are in no hurry to move Richards at all, considering this is just his second year. He's earning a league minimum. Um, he's controllable for at least four more years beyond this year before getting to free agency. They have plenty of time to make this decision. My expectation is the Marlins won't be trading from their legit starting pitching depth right now at this deadline. The timing just seems a little bit awkward. You want to give it more time to evaluate internally who your best options are going to be moving forward. And he's someone that, although he is fairly stretched out dating back to last year, uh, he's never been in a major league rotation for an entire season. So this would be a bit of an unknown for whatever team is acquiring him. You don't want to be too quick to dismiss somebody as having a certain ceiling in the majors, especially when they've had some level of success. My expectation is long-term. He's not going to have this kind of big role on a successful Marlins team, but for the Marlins, it makes the most sense just to hold on to Richards for the time being, unless they get totally overwhelmed by a team that sees more potential in him than they do. The next trade candidate is a pretty emotional one if you're a Marlins fan. It's shortstop Miguel Rojas. Age 30 season, he's slashing 288, 344, 365. That's a 92 weighted runs created plus, 1.5 wins above replacement, and 346 plate appearances. He's been arguably the MVP of the Marlins so far this season. The contact hitting skills that you've grown accustomed to over the years, they're actually yielding more base hits than they have in the past. Ground ball through for a base hit. They're going to wave around Alfaro. Here comes a throw from Fowler. It is not in time. And Miguel Rojas up to second after an RBI that ties the game with two outs in the eighth. Time and time and time again with two strikes, we see Miggy Rowe go the other way. Finds the hole, finds green grass. He brings plus defense at multiple positions. In 2019, he's been focused exclusively at shortstop since mid-April. He's been playing there virtually every single day, and he's brought so much value at that position. If you want to look at a reason why the Marlins' young pitching has been so successful right away, a big factor in that is the infield defense being played behind them, and nobody individually is having a bigger impact on that part of the game than Rojas is. To Anderson, off his glove, Rojas gets to it, and look at that, how about that? Miguel Rojas, right place, right time. Takes the deflection, shovel pass to Anderson, who somehow found Albies, and they get out number three. Oh, who said baseball isn't a team sport? Well, Brian Anderson kind of lining up his feet. Rojas does a fantastic job. I think some of the sabermetrics overstate the kind of impact he has on the field. They don't necessarily take into account uh, how many rallies he kills by grounding into double plays, where he's among the league leaders and grounding into double plays. And in today's day and age, where so much run scoring is dependent on actually hitting home runs, he just does not have the capacity to hit a ball over the wall. I was as shocked as anybody when he actually did it once right before the All-Star break. It's a big limitation in, in his game, and it makes him pretty reliant on other teammates in his lineup in order to actually get runs across. So that's a pretty significant uh, knock against him. This year, he's earning a $3.16 million salary, and he's going to be arbitration eligible one more time in 2020, where you'd expect him to get a pretty significant raise, but it's not a skill set that actually gets richly rewarded in arbitration, regardless if he goes to a team that values him as an everyday player, the same way the Marlins do, he's going to be a good value for them when it comes to financials. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, when you're a good player on a team that is selling at the trade deadline, your name is going to come up in those trade negotiations. 
The Marlins may not be pushing all that aggressively to get him moved, but you can be sure that other teams are curious about him, knowing the versatility that he brings when he's not a shortstop. Some may see a lot of value in him, even as just a part-time player, because of all the high-character things that he does off the field and in the clubhouse. He's someone that makes a lot of teams better and can fit very uh, flexibly into pretty much any roster that you move him in on. He just has a lot of intangible value to the Marlins organization as someone that they got as initially in the D. Gordon trade almost five years ago. They got him, and he was a total afterthought, someone that at his very best maybe could stick at the edge of the roster as a utility man. So he's exceeded those expectations, and he's one of the most popular players to the fan base. So from that aspect, that would deter them from trying to trade him. At the same time, we've gone through the list so far. There are a few more names coming up, but none of these guys are likely going to bring back a huge haul in trades. And if the Marlins don't yet see themselves as having enough talent internally to build a full-on sustainable contender, they need to make some tough decisions when it comes to who to flip for younger, more controllable talent. Ultimately, I do not expect Rojas to get traded. This is the peak of his value. If you are going to trade him at any point, it would be now. But given the value that he had on the field so far this season and what he means to the fan base and the team off the field, the fact that I think he's really a better candidate for an extension than he is to get traded, someone that you could see aging fairly gracefully in a limited role, maybe not going to be an everyday shortstop when this team turns the corner. They have a couple nice prospects just added to the farm system that are more likely to have that role than he is, but he has value with this team. He's someone that in a short time is one of the more impactful players that the organization has had, uh, especially since they started this rebuild but someone that is so universally liked by both his teammates and his competitors, I think he stays. The oldest pitcher on the Marlins is also their most obvious trade candidate, that is right-hander Sergio Romo. Age 36 season, a 4.13 ERA, a 4.34 FIP, 0.1 wins above replacement in 32 and two-thirds innings pitched. He's been nearly perfect in save opportunities this season and limited almost exclusively to working as a closer. So Matt Wieters will hit. Flaherty is picked, up. picked off a second yeah. base, and that's how it ends. Oh, my. Wow. The pinch runner is picked off. It's a Marlins win. Oh, they caught him napping. He was looking somewhere other than Sergio Romo. Watch this back pick. Flaherty's talking. He's not even looking. Rivera sneaks in, comes up with the tag. Yeah, he's got him. That arm is not there. Wow, what a way to end this ball game. The Marlins signed him at the beginning of spring training, and they really drummed up his versatility. He was coming off a season with the Tampa Bay Rays that he was frequently an opener for them, starting the game and going usually just one inning at the beginning of games. It was highly unconventional and a little bit controversial, and he really embraced that versatility. From the get-go this year with the Marlins, he was saying he was ready for anything to handle whatever role this all fit, and yet they have him limited into this highly specific role where, frankly, he hasn't been able to impact the game as much as you would like for someone that has been fairly consistent for them this season. As we've mentioned with several of these other players already, he's been a star in the clubhouse. He's been very personable to the media. The kind of energy that he shows on the field really resonates with fans, whether they're watching from the ballpark or at home. He's popular. But he's also a pending free agent. A $2.5 million contract brought him in this offseason. There's going to be less than a million of that remaining 
down the stretch after the trade deadline. So that's a number easily to absorb if you're a contending team, even if you have a lot of other commitments on your books. Other teams probably wouldn't value him as a closer. As um, effective as he's been this year, it's often been very adventurous. He is more reliant on his defense than he used to be. The strikeout rate is certainly down from his prime. What he brings is a very interesting contrast in styles compared to the typical reliever today. He is some of the lowest average fastball velocity in baseball, and he doesn't even throw his fastball often anymore. It's very reliant on that frisbee slider that has so much horizontal movement. If you're able to time it up as a batter, you could drive it a long way, but the majority of batters aren't able to really know, track exactly where that pitch is going and get good wood on it. So overall, he's been probably exactly what the Marlins were expecting. He hasn't exceeded those expectations, but he's been perfectly fine for them, and he'll have a role with a contending team. He's almost a lock to get traded at this deadline but prior to July 31st. He's not going to bring you back much in return at all. I don't even think it would be a top 30 Marlins prospect that they get in return uh, just because of the bottom line results and the fact that he has a lesser value to whatever team is acquiring him than he had to the Marlins in the first place. But I, I'd like to be the first one to thank Sergio for his great contributions to the Marlins this season and really representing the franchise very proudly. It'll be fun during that final throwback weekend to see him in the old Marlins uniforms. Hopefully this goes down to the deadline so we get to enjoy a couple more weeks of him in the Marlins uniform, but he's as good as gone. Next up is a very unlikely trade candidate, but an enormously important one. That's left-hander Caleb Smith. Age 27 season, about to turn 28 years old, a 3.46 ERA, 4.33 FIP, a 0.9 wins above replacement in 78 innings pitch. During the first quarter of the season, Caleb had one of the most dominant stretches of starting pitching by any Marlin in franchise history, easily the best run we've seen by a starter since the late great Jose Fernandez, and somehow I think he's become a little underrated since then. He missed nearly a month of major league action due to left hip inflammation, um, he has been giving up a lot more home runs since he returned from the injured list than he did uh, during that first quarter of the season. There's not much of a track record at the major league level because his first extended opportunity as a starter came last year prior to suffering that lat injury that led to season-ending surgery. He hasn't pitched a full major league season, as has been pointed out pretty repeatedly now that he's coming off that surgery. His innings are being monitored a little bit by the Marlins this season. They probably would not leave him in the starting rotation every fifth day the rest of the year, um, especially not for a team that would be going to the postseason. That's a consideration for any team that's interested in him, is that it's more of a long-term play with Caleb. He is earning about the league minimum this year. He's under control for a similar price next year, and only then does he get to arbitration. So it's this year and at least four more beyond that of team control for a guy that at times has been absolutely dominant. He's got three pitches that he controls very well and that he could get swings and misses with that fastball, the slider, the changeup. They work very well with each other. He's found a way to, at times, be that dominant pitcher, even without um, having overwhelming velocity. It's The key has been his spin rate and his command. Uh, those are nice building blocks to have. He's in a strange situation because he is older than a lot of other pitchers would be with his same amount of major league experience. So you don't know if he's actually going to get much better than what he is right now. And of course, this recent stretch that he's been on, where he has not had quite the same command that he used to, and where opponents seem to be adjusting a little bit to him, it gives you a little bit of concern if you're a team that wants to get better right now. It's also tricky to find comparable cases to Caleb that actually get moved to the trade deadline. 
at this state in their career. Uh, the closest one I could come up with was lefty Drew Pomeranz three years ago when he went from the Padres to the Red Sox. And in return, the Padres only got one prospect in return, but it was a consensus top 50 prospect in Anderson Espinoza. Uh, if you want to play the results, that has not worked out very well. By limiting themselves to just one prospect, they really went all in on Espinoza, and he has not pitched since the end of the 2016 season due to elbow injuries. So that's the kind of risk that you take when you settle for just one guy instead of a bigger package. I, I feel the same way with Caleb this year, that if they were to trade him and look for a high upside guy, they would basically be making a one-for-one. One. The only way that you're going to get a significant, uh, multiple players in a package for him right now is if you kind of lower the upside on the centerpiece of that package, and maybe that's not super attractive for a team that right now has been hunting for those impact players rather than worrying about depth. Now that they have depth, they're kind of looking for the high upside, and I'm not sure that you get that with Caleb at this very moment. It depends how his next few starts go. He has three more starts between now and and the July 31st trade deadline, and he has not had one of those single dominant starts since that first quarter of the season. So I'm throwing his name out there kind of with the assumption that he has at least one of those great outings between now and the deadline to reassure teams that he can have a big impact for them in 2019. But overall, it's just there's a lot of complications going on here. The biggest one being that he had that shoulder injury and he has that limited track record in the major leagues. And as we mentioned with Trevor Richards, it's not the kind of timing quite yet where the Marlins are looking to unload their pitching depth. That's certainly an option for them. Maybe they do get overwhelmed by somebody willing to give up multiple big impact prospects that are close to the major leagues because they really trust Smith's uh, spin rate and they see him somehow getting even better than he was during the first quarter of the season. I don't want to totally discount that, but the odds are that he's staying with the Marlins at least through the rest of this year, and then they reevaluate things with their pitching staff over the winter. The last player we'll touch on here in the main trade candidate section of the episode is first baseman Neil Walker. Age 33 season, a 270 batting average, 346 on base, 402 slugging, 104 weighted runs created plus, 0.2 wins above replacement, and 211 plate appearances for the Marlins this season. He was their best hitter early in the season. At the same time that Caleb was the ace of the rotation, he was like the most trustworthy bat in the middle of the lineup. Not a guy that showed huge power at any point, but just such a consistent on-base machine and a good situational hitter, someone that has a very long track record in this league. When you're in the lineup at that point, does hitting just kind of become contagious? It is contagious. There's no doubt about that. And, and, and you, could, you could sense in the dugout that, that we felt good about the bats we were putting together uh, early in the game, and we just didn't uh, really get rewarded for it. So nobody panicked. Nobody stay, everybody stayed calm. And, um, you know, that inning we just – Took what the pitcher was giving us and, and did a good job of, of, of taking the at-bats and, and, and moving along. Like you mentioned, no one panicked throughout the game, even though you guys were down until the seventh inning. What impressed you most about this win? Yeah, I mean, that's the type of baseball we have to play right there. You know, we're, we're, we're obviously a team that doesn't sit back and wait for the three-run homer in, in game, so we have to put put together good at-bats. we got to use the whole field. Um, you know, guys got to go first to third, score on, on, on singles, things like that. And we did all that today. It just took uh, several innings to get to that point. It's really Walker and Romo on this roster that stick out for how long they've been in the majors and how pretty steady they've been, a positive impact on the teams that they've had. Walker, of course, used to be a second baseman for most of his career with the Pirates um, and then with the Mets. But over the past couple of years, he's had to move into more of a utility role. I called him a first baseman. Uh, he wouldn't necessarily be a first baseman for a contending team. He would have to show a lot of that defensive versatility. And the problem with him is that although he has that willingness to play other positions, something that like Starlin Castro doesn't have, 
He's not really that good defensively at any position at this stage of his career. He is not a quick guy. He has good hands, and that's pretty much all. The only thing you could say is he's got those really sure hands, and he'll make a lot of the plays that are hit directly at him. And if he has some time to make a play, he'll be precise with it. He's not going to make a lot of conventional defensive errors, quote-unquote errors, but he's someone that has limitations defensively. Since coming back from an injury, he missed, uh, I think, more than a month on the injured list before finally returning to the lineup, and he has not had the same impact at the plate since then. That's a big concern. If he was the guy he was before his injury, someone that was 15 20% better than the league average hitter, then I think you could find a lot of roles for him, and maybe yet he shows that stuff over the next couple weeks. Uh, other, otherwise, I, I don't know what the kind of big interest is going to be in Neil Walker. There's not a single team out there that needs a player like him. If he's going to be simply a league average hitter on an expiring contract, uh, a cheap contract, just like Sergio Romo that he could absorb pretty easily down the stretch, it's hard to see him as a high priority for any one team. At You're going to get maybe one player back for him. Um, the Marlins may even consider eating some of the money still owed to him in order to sweeten the return they get back. I do think, like Romo, he will get moved somehow, some way prior to the deadline. Maybe the Red Sox find him useful if Mitch Moreland can't get back on the field. He's a regular first baseman. The Rockies could use some more role players uh, in a part-time role, although Walker and Daniel Murphy are kind of redundant on that roster. I just don't see it him being a need for anybody. But the bottom line is I think you can get something for him if you're the Marlins, and that's that's better than nothing. And it opens up some roster spots that you can use on your homegrown player down the stretch to get a closer look at pieces of your future. Walker is not going to be one of those pieces of the future, so better to get something than nothing. Yes, they're going to be a seller at the trade deadline. Yes, they're not committed to winning games down the stretch so much, but a lot of the members of their current active roster have potential long-term roles in the success of the organization. Not all of them are going to be flipped for younger talent. That does not do much good for the fan base or really for the health of the organization right now. They need to hold on to a lot of the talent they have and give them an opportunity to prove themselves in the major leagues. The timing is not right for most of these guys to move. Uh, One notable omission that we had circled heading into the regular season, who I can assure you is not going to be traded at the deadline, is Jose Urena, the opening day starter, who is out on the injured list with a herniated disc, and he has been for about a month and a half now, and with no firm timetable to return yet. that, That was a big setback. He was not having a great season as it is. He had some inconsistency in his past, as you guys are well aware of. So it would probably not have been a huge return regardless, but someone that would have definitely drawn interest in the same way that maybe Trevor Richards does. Except with Arrhenia, he's a lot closer to free agency. Uh, We've given him a lot more of an opportunity to prove himself as a reliable top-of-the-rotation guy, and he simply hasn't reached that kind of potential yet for the Marlins. So he's someone that would have been actively marketed if he was healthy. We'll see what happens with him should he come back from the injured list this season and kind of rebuild that value heading into the winter. Uh, One Marlins trade candidate that I am sure you did not think about at all to this point is right-hander Hector Noesi. He hasn't pitched at all for the Marlins in the major leagues this year. He's not even on the Marlins roster, and that's kind of why I see him as a trade candidate because his path is blocked from making any impact in the major leagues considering all the starting pitching depth that they have. There are other contending teams that do not have the same kind of depth. And they could use somebody like Noah C. Uh, if not in their rotation, then at least as a long man in their bullpen. He's among the league leaders in the Pacific Coast League this season in innings pitched and strikeouts with an ERA in the low threes. 
which is remarkable considering how hitter-friendly that environment is. He had pitched for several years in Korea before coming back to affiliated baseball this year. Uh, One interesting note about him is that because he's on a minor league contract and not on the Marlins' active roster, he remains trade eligible even after July 31st. This is the first year that Major League Baseball has that single trade deadline, but it does not apply to him because he's a minor leaguer. And with all due respect to some of the veterans on this Marlins roster, Curtis Granderson, Martin Prado, Wei and Chen, they're all negative assets at this point. You could eat every cent still owed to them on their contracts, and you're not going to get anything in return. You're not even going to get a team to accept them on their roster for free, basically for free. It's not going to work out. They're perceived as being washed up, and the Marlins can either enjoy their intangibles in the clubhouse, or they can simply release them and open up those roster spots for younger players that are ready to take that next step. Once again, my name is Eli Sussman. Thank you so much for listening. Even if you don't hear me directly on Fish Stripes the remainder of the season, you can still feel my impact on the website, fishstripes.com, on social media, at Fish Stripes, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you subscribe to the Fish Stripes podcast, wherever podcasts are available, you listen to us on Slam Radio, Sirius XM 145. I'm the one that produces most of these episodes, so you can enjoy that work. And be, and be sure I'm the first one to bring any criticism to if you see anything that you'd like to improve upon with Fish Stripes and our coverage of the Marlins and their minor league system. We're always looking to get better, always looking to expand our coverage of the Marlins as well. Very excited to find out how this trade deadline actually plays out. We hope you all join us on the ride, and we'll have coverage of it every step of the way. Go Fish!